Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. As always, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And um, you can join us during the week, by the way, on the Fox Business Network. Same guy, same kind of thinking. Conservative thinking. Free market thinking. Capitalist thinking, how about that? All that kind of thinking. Law and order thinking. <laughs> Close the border thinking. Anyway, you can join us on Fox Business Network, FBN. name of the show is Cudlow. It's 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. If you can't make us at uh, 4, well, a couple things. Number one, you can DVR the show. Text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to do it. It's not that hard. Or there's a repeat, replay, at 7 to 8 p.m., also on Fox Business. And here on the radio, you can live stream us on the Internet. How about that? Live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com. LarryCudlowShow.com runs all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. As always, lots to talk about. Um, Senator Menendez of New Jersey got indicted again, second, second indictment for him. He got off on the first indictment. That was a few years back. I think it was a hung jury or some such thing. This one's a cool story. I, I'm, I'm going to hold the story because we've got uh, Mark Simone and Joe Concha coming at the half hour. It's, it's a fun story. It's got gold and cash and girls and fancy cars and Egypt and oh my God, this guy. I don't look. He 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 deserves a, a jury. Okay, he deserves a jury. So I don't want to prejudge it, but he seems to have a way of getting busted every few years. New Jersey's proud senator, and they're calling for his head. But um, I guess the story I want to talk about right at the top is the immigration story, the unbelievable illegal immigration story. Honestly, uh, late last night, late last night, the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, this is one of these Friday night releases that they hope nobody will see. We set a new uh, U.S. record um, FY23 illegal migrant encounters for the month of August. That's what it is. 232,972 for the month of August alone. 
about that? And through August, 2,206,000. And uh, as of almost the close of September, almost the close of September, today's the 23rd, the close is in a week, the fiscal year is in a week. Anyway, 2,388,350 illegal migrants for FY23, less one week. 2.4 million, let's call it, okay? That is a very big number. And we don't really know. I mean, you've got the the gotaways, and it's hard to count all this stuff, but basically, most of the estimates we've seen, you've got over 7 million illegals have come into the U.S., across the border, the southern border mostly, under Joe Biden. Over 7 million. What's 7 million? Well, New York City population is about 8 million. So you're creating almost another New York City. Still the largest city in the country. Okay, think about that for a minute. So that's one reason why uh, all these Democrats are turning tail now on Biden. Mayor Eric Adams yelling at Biden. I see Governor Hochul yelling at Biden. She goes to Washington. Biden won't see her. I don't know who she saw, anybody of consequence. Mr. Adams wants, uh, what is he saying, $12 billion to cover the cost. And uh, Hochul says we can no longer invite people in. You can no longer, I'm trying to look at her exact wording. I'm not really sure I have it here. Yeah, they're coming from all over, Governor Hochul said. But we have to let the word out that when you come to New York, we're not going to have more hotel rooms. We don't have capacity. So we also have to message properly that we're at our limit. If you're going to leave your country, go somewhere else. (laughs) That's wonderful because all they did was invite them in before and embrace open borders, humanitarian reasons, asylum. You know, folks, there's uh, a lot of Latins coming in, no question, Venezuelans, but uh, we'll have Chad Wolf, the former Trump secretary of... uh, DHS, Department of Homeland Security. But there are more or less illegals coming in from 170 countries around the world. 170 countries. Including quite a few Russian-speaking, Africans, Asians, Chinese, sex traffickers, drug traffickers. Terrorists. The mayor of Dallas, Texas, his name's Johnson. He's just uh, repudiated the Democrats and he's switching parties to become a Republican. He says Democrats stand for too much crime, too much homelessness, too much spending. He's a popular guy in Dallas, okay? He's one with 99% of the vote, but he just switched parties. As I say, Mayor Adams here in revolt. But Mayor Adams wants more federal money. That's not the solution. I'm sorry. That is not the solution. Governor Hochul saying we're out of hotel rooms. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. 
The solution is to close the border. That's the solution. Close the border. Restore remain in Mexico. Come up with a new Title 42. You could do it on the basis of drugs, I reckon. Continue to build the wall. Put military troops down there if you have to. Force Mexico. I mean, Trump had Trump had Mexico, I think, put up 25,000 troops to guard the border. Right now and in recent years, the drug cartel runs the border. The Mexican drug cartel. Probably cartels, plural. I don't know enough about it. But we sure don't. The United States sure doesn't. Our authorities don't. And the Biden administration could care less. It's a great thing uh, Joe Biden gives a speech, I don't know, Thursday or Friday, I think it was Thursday. He blames Trump for the border. It's just like he blames Trump for the economy. He blames Trump for the uh, inflation. It's just utter nonsense. He blames Trump for gasoline prices. This is why Biden's going down. But that's a different subject. We will cover that later in the show. But the point I'm making is, in Trump's last year, there were 450,000 illegals crossing in. Now, that's still way too much. But compared to 2.4 million, it's a trickle, drop in the bucket. And during the Trump years, by the way, that number whittled down quite a bit after the President Trump finally got his arms around it, got Mexico to help him, and so forth and so on. This is a big problem. This is a national problem. It's not just a border problem. It's a national problem because, you know, these illegals come around and they cross. Nobody stops them. The authorities at the border become babysitters and paper pushers. They don't make any effort. There's no deportation. It's catch and release, not catch and deport. I had Steve Miller on the uh, TV show last night, my pal Steve Miller from the Trump administration, brilliant guy, working on this uh, continue. He did it in the White House. He's still working on it in his um, capacity. He runs the Legal Foundation, America First Legal Foundation, I believe it's called. In any event, um, former President Trump gave a speech in Dubuque, Iowa, I believe Wednesday night, and he hearkened back to the 1950s, President Eisenhower, and what um, Mr. Trump referred to as the Eisenhower model. It had to do with the Braceros program, Mexican immigrants coming in for agriculture and staying without proper papers, no legality. So the point here is 1.3 million, 1.3 million were deported. And that program was, I think, 1954-55. Now that's good history because there's got to be a deportation program. There have to be arrests made and illegals deported. 
as part of restoring the sovereignty of the U.S. Uh, side of the Mexican border. They're going to have to be. Because you can't accommodate 7 million people. Now, I don't know the exact number. I don't know that anybody knows how many illegals are in this country. There was a number floating around for many years that there were 11 million and that they had been here for a long time. And that may be true. But that number is very old. Some of those estimates run upwards of 30 million. Now, I'm not going to hang my hat on any of these numbers. These are just numbers that are out and about. The truth probably lies somewhere in between Biden's seven and these higher estimates of 30 over time. That's 30 million over, over a long period of time. But you can't keep running 7 million per year and then bringing kids and spouses and so forth. You just can't do that. You lose the very nature, the very spirit, the very soul of the country. And by the way, I want to state, as I have so many times on this topic, that I am very much in favor of the great American tradition of immigration and what immigrants have contributed to this country over a period of time. I very much favor that. Right? My, great, my grandparents and great-grandparents are immigrants, so I very much favor that. But it has to be done legally. Legally. And there are legal immigration reform plans out there. We had a pretty good one in the Trump administration. Never got anywhere in Congress because Congress wants, the Democrats want open borders. So don't misunderstand, please, folks. I am in favor of the great tradition and contributions that immigrants have made to this great country of ours. But it must be legal. What's going on the border is a catastrophe. It's fantastical. No country in the world has permitted this sort of thing. Except the Biden administration. It wasn't even this bad. You know, Barack Obama, I got to take a commercial break, but I just want to, Barack Obama was a big deporter. He deported millions of illegals. Joe Biden has just lost his mind, like so many other things. These far-left progressives that populate the Biden administration, human rights, asylum, nonsense, just open borders, utter lawlessness, no sovereignty whatsoever, and basically no pride in America or American values or American laws, and it is ruining our cities, and on and on and on. So I begin the show today with a very difficult proposition. The numbers are the numbers, the estimates are the estimates, but the thought behind it, from day one, the Bidens have not lifted a little tiny pinky finger to try to defend our border. And the rest of the country, one way or another, drugs, lawlessness, homelessness, hotel rooms, education system, health care spending, one thing after another related to this illegal migrant population influx coming across the border, virtually unhindered. This cannot be. This 
cannot be. And there's an election in, what, 15 months, some odd. It's going to be a big issue. It's going to be a big issue. And uh, we'll talk about the next Republican debate, which is Wednesday. It'll be a big issue there. Let me take a quick break. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back after this. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window your work can take you all over the place like texas you've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Just a word before we bring in uh, Joe Concha and Mark Simone to talk about immigration and Menendez and other things. There's a Republican debate. Uh, Fox Business is sponsoring this debate in the Reagan Library, Ronald Reagan Library. I'll be out there broadcasting our show, and I'm going to do the uh, pre-debate show. And then uh, Stu Varney and Dana Perina are going to do the um, the actual questioning. But um, it'll be an interesting debate. It'll be an important debate. Uh, Trump's not going to be there, unfortunately. Uh, he is the clear front runner. He's ahead in all the polls by 40 or 50 percentage points. Uh, legal problems aside, he is a sure shot to be the Republican nominee. I believe he will beat Joe Biden if he is permitted to beat Joe Biden, to run against Joe Biden. Of course, Biden Democrats doing everything they can to stop Trump from running. It's really a travesty of justice, but we'll talk about that later. But I do want to highlight the debate because it'll be interesting what the others are saying. I want to hear what they're saying about immigration. And I want to hear what they're saying about inflation and the economy and national security be very important what is the republican party stand for what comes out of this debate country and uh, we'll have joe concha and mark simone in just a few moments please stick around lots more to do 
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we welcome to the show two good friends, Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and a Fox News contributor and the author of Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency. And my great pal, Mark Simone, radio host, 710-WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., and recently nominated to the Radio Hall of Fame. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here on a Saturday. Congrats to Mark once again on the Hall of Fame. There you go. It'd be like a Lou Gehrig speech, I would imagine. (laughs) I am the luckiest man alive. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Aaron Judge hit three homers last night, speaking of the Hall of Fame. Uh, Mark Simone, is um, is uh, Senator Robert Menendez a crook? Sure reads like absolutely, it. Absolutely, <laughs> definitely. You know, they found, besides the gold, besides the Mercedes, they found $500,000 in cash in his mm. house. Nobody... Except for Tony Soprano and those, <laughs> nobody has $500,000 in cash in their house. Nobody. It's like Biden with the, nobody's family has every member of the family with an LLC and a shell company. <laughs> nobody's grandkids have shell companies, <laughs> LLCs. <laughs> he didn't even bother to, be, to register an LLC. He you just took you the cash You don't have to be Sherlock directly. Holmes for this. <laughs> you know, he, um, according to his various accounts, I mean, this is a very serious matter, but it does have its humorous uh, aspects to it. Um, he went online, his computer went online to find out the quotes for gold. What's a kilo of gold? You know, he could have called me. I check the gold <laughs> price every single day. All right. Gold is a very important monetary indicator. I could have helped him out, but he never called me. Uh, Joe Conscious, so he's resigned as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I'm not really sure. I mean, apparently he's pals with some Egyptian businessmen operating in uh, in New Jersey. Uh, and then somehow uh, national security secrets, it's all very hazy um, about weapons purchases and other things uh, going to uh, the government of Egypt, which I might add is a friendly government. Uh, but he's uh, Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, is calling for his uh, resignation from the Senate without even a trial, for heaven's sakes. I mean, you know, he had a hung jury the last time. I mean, maybe he'll continue. I, just because he has a couple of dollars lying around in his suit pockets, I mean, I wouldn't get that excited about it, really, in this day well, and age. And the gold bars and the cars. <laughs> and, you know, Tony Soprano was a smart man. Even... <laughs> He, he was. He wouldn't be stupid enough to keep five hundred thousand dollars in his house. Paulie Walnuts, maybe, but Soprano, no, no shot. I, I think you're hearing all these Democrats calling for Bob Menendez to resign because I think there's a lot more to this story, and there is a chance it could lead to Hunter Biden somehow, right? I mean, we see in the New York Post today an aide to Senator Bob Menendez aiming to have his then Vice President Joe Biden host an event. In 2010, first reached out to a business partner of Hunter Biden with the request emails on the First Son's abandoned laptop show. So uh, somehow there's a connection between Menendez and Hunter. So when they say, oh, you know, Senator, you must resign, whether you're Governor Murphy, whether you're some Democrats in Congress. I think that's to get him off the grid and get the headlines to go away so they don't have to have this embarrassment. But uh, they hear this whole argument now, which is hilarious to me, guys, that – 
see, this shows that there isn't two tiers of justice. They went after a Democrat, too. I'm pretty sure a guy running for president who's a former president and a senator from New Jersey who's up for re-election next year, I'm pretty sure those aren't equal. But fine, that's the argument that we're hearing now. Joe, Joe Conja, you're from New Jersey, aren't you? Yes, I am. Wayne, New Jersey, born and bred. Wayne Valley, state champs. Yeah. Well, so throw your hat in the ring for the Senate race. <laughs> My dad thinks I should run for Senate. He brought that up not too long ago. He's like, you couldn't be Cory Booker? I'm like, in New Jersey, no. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we almost had a Republican governor uh, two years ago. Yeah. But Senator Murphy, I'm sorry, Governor Murphy was nearly beaten by uh, Jack yeah. Cittarelli. So uh, could we have a Republican senator in New Jersey? The way things are going for the Democratic Party, it's not the biggest stretch. Mark Simone, I'm just thinking, and I asked, asking my producers yesterday when we were hustling up this story, uh, Democrats have a lot of scandals now. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of scandals out there, and I think that's going to reflect badly on them in the election. And I was trying to think of Republican scandals. We haven't had a good Republican scandal in quite some time, Mark. No. It should be pointed out, this is the U.S. Attorney Southern District Manhattan. That's the top U.S. attorney's office. They're, mm. they're not political. They, would, they tried to push them into doing some Trump indictment. They wouldn't do it. This is a very good U.S. attorney. Mm. He's thorough. He's been on this case for a while. And they got uh, Menendez's wife with a no-show job with the same. Uh, but they've got the, uh, the bribers already indicted. They're, they're, they're going to get them on this. It's pretty serious stuff. Uh, Republican scandals, I, I can't think of one in a long, long time. You have to yeah. go way back to... I can't remember the guy's name on the houseboat with the uh, Arab uh, sheiks uh, oh, 30 years ago. Yeah, that was a while ago. I'm just saying that I'm trying to think of what the implications are for this. These headlines are going to be around for a while. You know, you have the Joe Biden headlines, you have the Hunter Biden headlines, et cetera, et cetera. You have the Merrick Garland headlines. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of corruption in the Democratic Party. Now, and and. Sometimes elections, you know, they're just it's time for a change. OK, and I it think also that- it's 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 very arrogant corruption. You know, Menendez was indicted. He was on trial through millions of dollars of lawyering. He beat it somehow. The arrogance of then doing it again after you just escaped. That's Democratic corruption with arrogance. You know, uh, Joe Concha, just to uh, skip around topics, reading the New York Post this morning, if you wear shorts and a hoodie, you can't get into the best restaurants in New York, but you can preside over the U.S. Senate, which is what uh, Senator Fetterman did this past week. What do you make of that, Joe Concha? Oh, that's my friend John Levine, who was the reporter on this story for the New York Post. And he went around in a hoodie and shorts and tried to get into places like Daniel. Or, you know, I remember the old 21 Club. They would hand you a jacket before you could get If you went there just in a button-down shirt and you just forgot to wear a jacket, they would hand you one. So, yeah, a lot of restaurants don't allow it, but the U.S. Senate does now. And what gets me about this whole thing with Fetterman, okay? A, he tries to portray himself as some sort of guy who's blue-collar and he's working hard and he doesn't have time to wear suits. Suits are for the phonies. This guy lived with his parents into his 40s, lived mm. off of them, right? Mm. He's never had a job in his life outside of politics. And of the 2,002 senators we've had in this country's history, more than 2,000, mm. we don't change this rule until this guy comes along? <laughs> I mean, come on, man, to quote a book somewhere. Yeah, come on. <laughs> he also went to Harvard. Did he really? Yes, he went to Harvard. 
do we do we mean Hartford, like in Connecticut? No, Hartford University in Cambridge, really? The one, the one in Cambridge, yeah. And apparently, his he did live at home, and you're right. And apparently, his family is quite well to do. So um, a lot of the trappings of this story are completely phony. Uh, and I was kind of happy, Mark Simone. At least some Democratic senators are in revolt against this. They're not all bad. Yeah, you have to revolt against. You know, I just got an Amazon delivery, and the guy was much better dressed than better. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the slipping of standards. Standards keep slipping. I don't know if you remember Obama one day in the White House wore a tan suit to work, mm. and it was controversy for three days why he didn't have a dark suit on. This is how much our standards have have slipped, and you just keep thinking there's some kind of evil secret plot behind this just to lowering the standards of everything, of our law enforcement, of our cities, of our streets, of our dress, everything. I don't know what these Democrats are up to, but they're destroying every standard we have in this country. Yeah. Um, Peggy Noonan wrote a good column. There aren't many, but she wrote a good column about this very point. <laughs> so I, I, I agree with you about the lowering of standards. Uh, but I was glad uh, Joe Manchin, Dick Durbin, a bunch of those guys want to actually have a vote, Democrats, and stop this nonsense. Um, it demeans the entire institution. There's no question about that. Uh, Joe Concha, let's go to immigration. Um, I mean, I am very much in favor of legal immigration, but uh, there are new numbers that came out l late last night, of course. The Customs and Border Protection Agency, um, 2.2 million fiscal year to date through August. Estimates are now 2.4 million uh, so far through September for the year. And under Joe Biden, there's well over 7 million illegal immigrants have crossed into the USA. Uh, 7 million plus, Joe, you're starting, New York City, I think, has 8 million population. So you're starting to get uh, a new New York City. Um, this has got to stop, and I think this is becoming a very big national issue for the presidential campaign, Joe. What's your thinking? A huge one. I mean, let's put those numbers in perspective. Forty states in this country don't have a population of seven million. Mm. All right. So we're, we eclipse that in two and a half years. And it's intentional. It's completely intentional. And then when Corrine Jean-Pierre is asked by Peter Ducey about this, how do you describe or how would you what would you call 10,000 people coming into this country per day at the U.S. southern border? She has the audacity. And she's not even a good liar. You know, I mean, Jen Psaki could at least think at her feet a little bit. Here's what she had to say. She blamed Donald Trump mm -hmm. and said that this administration inherited a broken border, which is completely not true, because obviously we had the wall and the construction going on, not as much as we would have liked, but at least there was an effort in the, most, in the, in the hot spots. And then we had the Remain in Mexico policy, which was very, very effective. And those were both pulled away on day one. So she blames Trump, and then she blames the current Republican Congress and has the audacity to say that they wanted to fund the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> not one person has ever said that. So it's not even like she's spinning things a little bit. She's outright lying. And here's the thing. When we had the next 9-11... 
we're going to have the same pundits on TV, the same idiots on TV, who say, we can't understand how we didn't see this sooner and we didn't connect the dots. The dots are right there in front of us. There are hundreds of people that have been apprehended that are on the FBI terror watch list, guys. That, those are the ones that have been apprehended during this administration. What about the really skillful ones that probably got in under the radar and into our system and are plotting as we speak? This is a national security issue that this president thinks he could just put his head in the stand, sand and ignore. I'm telling you, there is a reason why Donald Trump is now polling in the last five polls, 20% approvals or support from the black community, which is double, more than double than any Republicans ever gotten, mm. and then 42% from the Hispanic community. Even they don't like this, obviously, because it's taking away their jobs and making their communities infinitely worse to live in. All right. We're going to take a quick break. I want to come back to this, and then I want to talk about the Republican debate on Wednesday. Folks, we're listening to Joe Concha of The Messenger. Fox News contributor and his book, Come On Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible Presidency. And Mark Simone, radio host, 710 WOR, 10 to 12, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Uh, every day. He's the best in the business. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and Fox News contributor, and Mark Simone, radio host, 710WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Mark, I wanted to come back to the immigration issue because I agree with Joe Concha. It's going to be a major issue in the presidential campaign. And judging from Biden's actions, he will take. In fact, he's they, they, their latest now is to give the illegals some kind of ID cards, which is insanity. In other words, it's okay to come across the border and maybe even give them work permits. But um, I want to hear from the Republicans, and I want to ask you about the debate on Wednesday night. I know Trump will not be there. I know he's a gigantic front runner. If the justice system lets him, I think he's going to be the nominee. Uh, probably the president. But, Mark, what, what are you thinking about the debate? And you think they'll, they'll focus on immigration. It's a, I won't say it's a sleeper issue, but it, it's kind of um, a lagging issue that becomes a leading issue. Yeah. Um, the most amazing part of this, usually you clean up your act as you go into an election. You try to get the gas prices down. You, you try to get the border under control, but they're doing just the opposite. Biden's recent actions are only going to drive up the price of gas, the border worse than ever, uh, the crime in it worse than ever. I, I don't know what thinking is going into an election year. Also, people are starting to realize I mean, we should support Ukraine as much as we can. But the idea of sending them billions to protect their border mm. and equipment, tanks, whatever they need, and not a thing to protect our border is going to be a huge issue in, in this debate. But one other point here is the issue of deportation. Trump gave a good speech, and powerful speech, in Dubuque, Iowa, and he hearkened back to um, the late President uh, Eisenhower's uh, program. He called it the Eisenhower model, which deported 1.3 million 
illegal Mexicans. I might add, uh, you go back and look at that history, you can Google it up, it had good support among Mexicans here uh, because they were threatened by it. They didn't like all the illegals coming in. Labor unions were okay with it. There were issues about the Bracero program and farm workers and so forth and so on. My question, Mark Simone, is deportation. I've not heard Republican candidates, except for Mr. Trump, talk about the need for deportation. Yeah, it's a little, it, it, it's uh, like touching the third rail sometimes. But Eisenhower did it with a much more primitive uh, transportation system, much more primitive logistics. If he could do a million, we could probably do four or five million easily. Mm-hmm. It's it's an issue. You know, but Donald Trump is always right. You know, when you build the wall, uh, deportation, he, he, he touches the right nerve. Sometimes he sees it ahead of everybody else. So I think he's on to something. Joe Concha, uh, on immigration and other things, what are you looking for? Uh, we're going to have both of you guys as commentators for this debate. Um, uh, I think the Thursday you're coming on. The debate is Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Joe, what are you looking for in this debate? I'm looking for issues, as usual. When Trump isn't there, the good news is, so to speak, is that then it doesn't become a food fight where Chris Christie's making jokes about Trump and then Trump's going back with fat jokes about Christie and then there's a whole Pence-Trump thing. I mean, boy, it would be great television. Uh, but then I think then it comes back to issues, and those obviously Republicans have the edge on, like Mark just described, as far as the economy, as far as inflation, wages, crime, the border, education, foreign policy. It's, it's hard to see where Democrats have an edge in any of those based on the performance of this president. So uh, I, I think that this is, I'm not going to say last gasp for Ron DeSantis, but he is drifting in the wrong direction, right? He's something like fifth place in New Hampshire now. Uh, he's obviously not within even 35 or 40 points of Donald Trump. To, to both your points, uh, the Trump will be the nominee unless something uh, on the legal uh, side gets in the way. So in the end, you got to look at, okay, who's going to do the best here that will impress Trump enough where he says, ooh, that could be maybe my vice president. And Vivek Ramaswamy also seemed to be uh, kind of a flash in the pan, right? He had a really good week, two weeks for a while where he's getting a lot of media attention, but now that that, that shine is, has drifted off. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Nikki Haley possibly being a VP pick, and then Charlie Hurt uh, talked me out of it when he said, no, he, he doesn't trust Haley when it comes to the, the uh, Ukraine-Russia war, so that's out. So I wonder, like, who will stand out there? Can Tim Scott finally have a moment, for example, where he shows that, yeah, we get you're a nice guy and you're, you, you work with others uh, well uh, and, and you're likable, but oh, can you be Donald Trump's vice president because i think a trump scott ticket when i really think about it that that, that can be very formidable mm-hmm. particularly when you see black support going up for donald trump the way it is already what do you think mark simone it's an interesting point trump scott ticket well yeah this is a very important debate because desantis is finished i got in a lot of trouble a few months ago every time i'd say that but uh, i think we can all agree <laughs> i think you're his right entire, <laughs> his entire campaign has been a dumpster fire he doesn't have get any campaign much. skills I thought your really your biggest hot water was when you said Carl Rove was advising the same. <laughs> yeah, which uh, when the donors get behind you, you know you got no shot. <laughs> uh, so the debate's important because this is where we're going to find out who is the number two in this race. It's not DeSantis. We'll see who it is. And also, you may be uh, picking a vice president in this race. It's not Nikki Haley because uh, the last time she worked for Trump, she stabbed him in the back. Mm. Uh, wrote that awful book about him, calling him a racist. It's not going to be her. This will be a really interesting debate. And it's on Fox Business, which is good. It'll be moderated fairly. It's not like a 
an NBC or an ABC debate. So, and Trump's not afraid to debate. He's doing the toughest debates in the world. That crazy meet the press or with Megyn mm-hmm. Kelly. So. Yeah, CNN. I don't know that there's a vice president in this group. I don't know. Thinking about it, I mean, one guy who's very qualified to be vice president has already been vice president. That's uh, obviously Mike Pence. Uh, Chris Christie ain't going to be his vice president. Uh, you've got Tim Scott that Joe mentioned. I think that's a very interesting one. Um, the governor of North Nome. Dakota. <laughs> Who? I think we can take her off the list. Christy Nome. I think, I Chris, think maybe that's not going to happen now. Christy Nome. Yeah. No, she's not going to be the vice president. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's a funny well, story. What were you, you going to say, Mark? I tell you who should be. I know he was looking seriously at Tim Scott, who's a great guy, but uh, from the first debate, he might be ready for the cabinet, not vice president. But he should take a hard look at Ben Carson. Yeah. That's who I would go with. I like Ben Carson. Anyway, fellas, you're great. Joe Concha, the messenger in Fox News. Mark Simone, WOR Radio. I'm Cudlow. Other side of the break, we're going to talk to Lee Cooperman, perhaps the best stock market manager and guru and advisor we've seen in so many years. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we welcome to the show an old friend and uh, somebody who's probably my many years in and out of Wall Street or covering the beat, uh, one of the best investment managers and advisors anywhere, any place, uh, and an honest guy, uh, my pal Lee Cooperman, who was the chairman and CEO of Omega Advisors. He has a brand new book out. It's called From the Bronx to Wall Street, My 50 Years in Finance and Philanthropy. Lee Cooperman, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be with you, Larry. Thank you for having me. So, Lee, I have not read the book. Uh, I've skimmed it. It's an easy read. I I intend to read it. You wrote a a lovely inscription, by the way. Um, What's so interesting here is you kind of started from nothing and worked your way up to the heights. And I think that's a great story. And I think that's a story that's, you know, too many people think you can't do that anymore. And I wanted you to talk to us about that. Can it be done again Absolutely can be done. It's getting more difficult. Uh, Let me explain. I I wrote the book for uh, two reasons. First reason, most important reason, I read that 30 to 40 percent of the U.S. youngsters think that socialism socialism is preferred to capitalism. Mm. They don't get it, you know. And the second reason I wrote it, I have three grandkids, and I want them to be capitalists with a heart. (laughs) And uh, my father came to America from Warsaw, Poland, at the age of 12 as a plumber's apprentice. No formal education. I'm the first generation of my family to go to college. I went to mostly all public schools. I went to public school 75 in the South Bronx. I went to Morris High School in the South Bronx. And I went to Hunter College in the West Bronx. I followed the advice of Harley Scurley and I went west. <laughs> I, then, uh, I, then, uh, I then got an MBA from Columbia Business School, which opened the door to Goldman Sachs. I started my career at Goldman Sachs on uh, February 1st of 1967. Uh, I had no money in the bank. I had a six-month-old child who today is celebrating his 56th birthday. Happy birthday, Wayne. Uh, and I had uh, uh, a student loan to repay. And uh, basically, I've made a great deal of money. As I outlined the book, I'm giving away 100% of what I've worked 60 years to make. And I think the socialists in this country 
and the administration don't fully understand that. I take a little bit to task in my book, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, I, I just it's just sad what's going on in the country, frankly. Very why sad. Is, why is there this assault on capitalism? I mean, you look at the history of this, um, you know, the history of thought, the history of economics. Capitalism is the greatest growth and prosperity machine ever invented, Lee Cooperman. And here you have all these people in Washington, D.C. I mean, I, I don't want to politicize this interview, but the fact remains that It has a lot to do, is, in my opinion, with income disparity. Huh. There's not been an equal sharing of the prosperity of the country, and I'm doing my best to try and narrow the income disparity. I think basically the income disparity has to be resolved through education. There's no better way. You know, I send a thousand kids to college in Newark, New Jersey. I put fifty million dollars to a fund. It's called Cooperman College Scholars, and you're trying to change the trajectory of these kids' lives. You know, thirty-five percent of Newark high school kids, when I got involved, went to college. Only five percent graduated. Is a Twinkle Morgan runs the program for me. She's done a fabulous job. Our first cohort graduated. We had a 73% graduation rate. Mm. And, you know, the average lifetime earnings of a college graduate is well over a million dollars more than a non-college graduate. Mm. So you're changing the trajectory of these kids' lives. And, you know, uh, that's it. And 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I think, I sent a letter to President Obama. I said, you know, you're depreciating the American dream. You're telling the 99% they're being screwed by the 1%. You should be telling the 99% with hard work and luck, you can become part of the 1%. You know? Is there is there enough hard work, Lee Cooperman? That's a question I had written down in these notes. Is there enough hard... Is the work ethic alive and well? It's been damaged, and I think COVID didn't help. Uh, but, you know, look, the... Uh, it's a hard philosophical question to ask. I think the, the world has changed to a great degree, but you asked at the opening, can uh, you achieve you know, independence and can you become part of the 1%? And I think the answer is yes. And I think I'm an example of that. And I've taken all my financial resources and I'm putting it back into the system. I figured out many years ago, there's only four things you could do with money. The first thing you could do with money, you spend it on yourself. You know, buy cars, art, baseball team, nothing wrong with all that. I'm not happy not to be interested. I'm married to a socialist, but we have the same values <laughs> in life, and that we both believe accumulating material possessions brings with as much aggravation as pleasure. So where less is more. The second thing you could do with, kids, with your money, give it to your kids. But if you have a lot of money, giving all your money to your children is a mistake because you deprive them of self-achievement. Mm. third thing we do with money is you give it to the government, but only a fool gives the government money more than you have to. You pay your taxes, and that's it. And the fourth thing you can do with money is recycle back into society and try to make the world a better place, and that's what I've decided to do with my money. You know, and uh, trouble is, I think, in this country, we're heading to a leadership at a crisis environment. You know, uh, our fiscal situation is ultimately going to be end in a crisis. Mm. We're putting our debt at an alarming rate, the debt increase. You know, in 20... 17, the national debt of the country was $20 trillion. Now it's running about $33 trillion five and a half years later. Mm. It's a growth rate far in excess. I don't have to tell you, you're the economist, I'm not. It's a mm. growth rate far in excess of the growth rate of the economy. And we just have degenerated into an environment of leadership at a crisis. So, you know, we live in too comfortably with our fiscal situation. And uh, basically, uh, hopefully, this, not hopefully, but this will change. It'll change with a crisis in 2008. Uh, we invented every acronym that had to be invented. The problem for the markets is we don't discount a crisis. Mm. There were 18, 19 times earnings. The market is not discounting any problems. 
Talk to me about the markets, if you would. There's no better investment advisor than you down through the years. Um, stocks look pricey. I'm worried about interest rates. I'm worried about energy inflationly. Um, I'm worried about the Federal Reserve. I don't like the leadership at the Federal Reserve, and I sure don't like the leadership in the White House. Talk us, tell us, give us some stock market wisdom, if you would. Well, I think that the stock, you know, about a year ago when I was on TV, I said that I had a view very much like the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh had a dream. The dream is in the Bible. It was interpreted by Joseph. The dream was we're going to have seven lean years following the seven fat years. <laughs> and so I think we're in store for an extended period of time of low returns in the major averages. And we're in a stock picker's game. And I think in the simplest terms, the multiple in the market is too high relative to interest rates and the world situation. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, the market, however, is very bifurcated. You know, the vast bulk of the gains this year in the, in the sainted seven, mm-hmm. and nine, you know, the other 493 companies in the S&P 500 are up about 4%. Um, but I would say uh, the market's going to go nowhere in the major averages. It's a time to be conservative and be cautious. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that multiples are too high relative to interest rates. I, I, I'm worried interest rates are actually going to go up rather than... Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. All this talk about it. You know, prior to the great financial crisis, the 10-year bond yielded in line with nominal GDP. If you have, you know, 3 to 4% inflation, you have real growth about 1.5%, 1 and 3 quarters. I wouldn't be surprised if the 10-year got over 5%. Yep, absolutely right. I mean, that's... My take, I don't follow it the way I used to, but that's exactly my take. Lee, you know, this program is listened to uh, by a lot of folks who are not experts. They're not Wall Street types. If the, What should they do with their savings? Well, I think stocks are still the best game in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would just, you know, own what you know, what you understand, and what's value-oriented. And I think having a certain amount of cash in your portfolio yielding 5% per annum right now isn't a mistake. I would avoid long-term bonds. Mm. You know, I would keep my bond portfolio with a short duration. And uh, I would, uh, you know, I'm not a big technology investor, but these technology multiples seem kind of high to me. And uh, I would be, you know, just try to buy cheap stocks, get a good financial advisor. Stay away from bonds. Okay. The name of the book is From the Bronx to Wall Street, My 50 Years in Finance and Philanthropy, the great Lee Cooperman, chairman and CEO of Omega Advisors. Thank you, Lee. We appreciate it very, very much. My pleasure. All the best. Stay safe, stay healthy. Keep doing your good job. You too. Thank you, buddy. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. The other side of the break, Chad Wolf, uh, former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. We're going to revisit the immigration fiasco. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We return to the issue of immigration and the related issue of deportation. And we bring in Chad Wolf, who's a former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And he's currently the America First Policy Institute executive director. Chad, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. You know, um... Uh, Former President Trump gave a speech in Dubuque, Iowa, and referred to something called the Eisenhower Plan. We went back and looked at it, and Ike uh, deported 1.3 million uh, back in the 50s. 
um, Mexican workers, I believe, principally. He had a lot of public support for it. Uh, I had Steve Miller on the TV show last night talking about this, too. I mean, these numbers, uh, last thing I want to say is the new numbers came out last night, of course, the dead of night on a Friday night, the Customs and Border Protection, um, 2.2 million through August illegals, and um, as of yesterday through September 23rd, 2.4 million um, in total, over seven million illegals. Chad Wolf, um, can we deport? Yeah. Can we deport? Would that be the right policy? Well, thanks for having me on, Larry. I, I think it will be difficult, uh, but that's not to say that we shouldn't try. Once individuals are here, illegal folks that come across that border illegally, and once they're released into into communities, it's very difficult. What the Biden administration, and you know this. Larry, uh, over the last two and a half years, has told ICE law enforcement officers not to remove hardly anyone. Mm. And so the numbers are extremely low. There's no fear of deportation, even if you have a final order of removal, which means as an illegal alien, you've gone through the court system, you've seen multiple judges, and they all agree that you need to be removed. And yet the Biden administration is not removing them. And so I, what I would say is let ICE do their job and start removing individuals. And you saw under President Trump, you know, you were moving a quarter of a million or more folks every single year. Um, and, and you can do more if you need to. Now, what I would say, you know, going back all the way to that Eisenhower plan, they were mainly removing Mexicans back to Mexico, which is much easier than what we uh, are looking at today when you have 170 different nationalities coming across that border. Some countries refuse to take individuals back, so you got to get creative on how you do it. Can you at least do it at the border? In other words, instead of catch and release, catch and deport? Well, I mean, that's the whole idea of MPP, right? Which is to say you're not going to be released into American communities while you wait your, your asylum proceedings, if that's what you're uh, claiming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole idea was that if they didn't qualify for asylum, then obviously they weren't released in the United States and that they would leave and return home. And I think that's the best way to do it. Again, you can you can surge immigration judges to the border and you can do a bunch of stuff. But once individuals are into the country and they are released, it is very difficult to find them. And we know a, a, a significant majority of them never show up for their court cases. Can you actually uh, try to mount a campaign to arrest illegals that are already in the country? Well, sure. I mean, again, that's what ICE, uh, what they call their removal operations, ERO. That's what their job is, is to identify individuals that, again, have no legal right to remain here in the United States. And in many cases, they've gone through a court system and they have a final order of removal. You prioritize criminals and you prioritize public safety threats and you do all this stuff. But yes, you prioritize, and we did this during the Trump administration, different um, localities, right? There's different cities and communities where you know you have multiple targets and you can do different campaigns within those. And then the best thing is to do is once those are done, you, you advertise. You advertise mm-hmm. that you're doing this so that there is a disincentive for folks to continue to come across that border because they know that they may get removed back to their home countries, which is, again, not occurring today. I mean, what I gather is the Biden policy, they're, they're talking about uh, work permits for illegals. They're talking about ID cards for illegals. It it's, sounds like it's making it easier to come in and easier to stay 
which strikes me as exactly the reverse of what we should be doing. I think you're right. You're exactly right. I mean, this is the this is the ugly secret of the Biden administration. And I, the way I would break it down is is like this, which is they've thrown open the gates to the border, right? They've they've opened the border wide open when they dismantled MPP or remain in Mexico in our right. asylum cooperative agreements. Um, you come in, uh, they will mass release you into American communities, and they've created quote all these pathways for you to come in. They parole you in different ways to come in. And here just recently, when all of that goes to court, and it is going to court, and a lot of it's being overturned in court, they are starting to give out what we call temporary protective status or TPS status to different populations. And they just did this with Venezuelans. Almost a half a million Venezuelans here illegally just got legal status by a stroke of a pen of the Biden administration when they decided to give them temporary protective status. So I think they've They've constructed this whole system, Larry, to your point, where it's actually working against them because it's incentivizing more and more of this illegal behavior. We're talking with Chad Wolf, who's the former secretary of the uh, Homeland Security. Chad, um, what is the role of Mexico in this whole game? I mean, it just strikes me that uh, the Trump administration had a lot more cooperation from Mexico than the Biden administration. What should Mexico be doing? What are they missing here? Well, I agree with you. I think the relationship um, between U.S. and Mexico was far stronger and far closer during the Trump administration than than we see today. Look, Mexico can be doing a lot more than than they're doing. I think everyone would recognize that. But they don't want to do it, particularly not under President, uh, the current president of Mexico, AMLO. But so that is incumbent on the Biden administration to push them to a place where they are uncomfortable and and requiring them to do different things. I think you saw some images this week of a train that Mm. that goes right through Mexico from the south to the north that is going all the way to our southern border. And it's just loaded up with illegal folks illegally on that train. And the government of Mexico knows about this. Um, and, And still they don't stop it and they don't do anything because they're not incentivized because President Biden has told them that he's taking certain things off the table, like I'm not going to designate the cartels as terrorist organizations. Hmm. I'm not going to use any military force. And so if you're Mexico, you're saying, well, you know, it's business as usual. Uh, There's not really going to be any consequences if I don't do things I really don't want to do. And and trust me, AMLO, current president, does not want to do anything as it relates to the cartels. Some would say he's in bed with them. I think there's a lot of strong evidence that points to that. And so he's not going to do this on his own. You're going to, we're going to have to make it very uncomfortable for him to do that. And does that um, include military force? I think it does. When, when we look at the cartels, I think all options should be on the table. I think we should use all of these different things as leverage over the government of Mexico to say, I need you to do more, and here's specifically what I want you to do. If not, we, the United States, are going to have to take some dramatic action that you may not like. But look, Americans come first. And that's our responsibility, and we may have to take these actions. All right. Chad Wolf, former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, now the executive director of America First Policy Institute. Thank you, Chad. We appreciate it very, very much. Folks, quick break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk some business and economics with John Carney of Breitbart. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back.
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to John Carney, Breitbart News Editor of Economics and Finance and co-author of the superb Breitbart Business Digest. John, welcome back. Let's talk about let's talk about inflation and let's talk about oil and energy inflation which um jay powell didn't want to talk about at his press conference uh edward lawrence our fox reporter asked him finally and then he gave this really weird blubbering answer but john oil prices have gone back up about 95 dollars now in the world markets uh gasoline is i don't know 385 386 387 What's going to happen here? I mean, uh, we're short. We are short oil production, it seems to me. And that's going to be a big problem. And that's going to be reflected in the inflation numbers in the months ahead. And that's going to affect Fed policy in ways that I don't think the Fed is ready for or being honest about. That's right. Look, oil is going up uh, and it's gone up a lot over the last two months. It's very likely to keep going up because, frankly, the countries that could produce more oil uh, aren't going to. Russia, the OPEC countries, Saudi Arabia in particular, have said, but basically they've said that we tricked them into overproducing because the Biden administration said, look, we're going to release oil reserves because oil was up at $125 a barrel. We're going to release it, but we'll buy it back when it gets down to, you know, $70, $80 a barrel. So they, they pretended that they were more or less setting up floor, uh, and they didn't do it. They didn't buy it back. So basically we alienated OPEC. OPEC now says we can't trust you with the price. We need to make up for it dropping so low before. And, of course, Larry, none of this is necessary. We can produce all the oil mm. we need in the United States. But the Biden administration, through a whole number of policies, has really done its best to discourage it. They speak a good game. They say they want more oil. But the investing in refineries, investing in oil extraction rigs Hmm. is a expensive business. And people need to know that they're going, you know, if you declare in 2023 that we want the entire U.S. car fleet to stop burning gasoline sometimes in 2030, 2035, you're not going to get any more investment in domestic oil production. And that's what they've done. They don't have it. I mean, they use SPRO, as you mentioned, a strategic petroleum reserve. But that thing's been run down almost half of it, not quite half, but almost half of it. I mean, (laughs) there's no SPRO cushion there, is there? I mean... How, how right. far down can they run that thing? That's right. Look, I mean, you, you, you don't, first of all, you can't run it to zero because just like <laughs> any other tank, that you, you know, like an oil tank you might have in your house, if you empty it out, it's ruined. So you, you can't really right. run it to zero. But also, we, you know, we're in hurricane season. You want to keep some of that oil around hmm. for if you actually need it for strategic reserves. Remember, it was never supposed to be a price control reserve. Uh, it was supposed to be a strategic reserve. Something happens in the Middle East, uh, you know, a natural disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, an earthquake somewhere. Then you use it. You don't use it just to, you know, control the price of oil. That's how they used it. They ran it down. They didn't refill it. 
And now it's created a big problem. As you said, Larry, this, you know, oil is part of inflation. It is part of the CPI. It's a Mm. big part of household expenses, particularly for, you know, really rich households. It's a very small percentage, you know, of what they're, you know, what they're spending either on heating oil or on, you know, gasoline in cars. But for working class families, gasoline and, you know, heating oil are very big parts of the budget and they're pretty inflexible. Meaning, you know, you can't decide not to drive to work uh, because, you know, then you just don't get paid. So when so this actually really puts a strain on household budgets, the Fed likes to talk about core inflation. There are good reasons for that. But, you know, but oil and and Powell, at least to his uh, credit, admits, look, we can't really ignore what happens in gasoline because, that's a big part of household budgets. If you ignore that, you're ignoring a big part of what makes what has been making life more expensive for a lot of Americans. Yeah, but uh, you're not far from a hundred dollars a barrel. You may break through a hundred dollars a barrel. You're not far from four dollar average gasoline in a lot of parts of the country. It's much higher than that. Uh, my point is, um, the Fed's got to be very careful here. If Oil and gasoline prices keep rising. Electricity prices keep rising. That's a big household expense. They will, you know, monetize, cover, accommodate the oil shock, and it'll be built into the entire CPI. You'll start showing up in services and labor costs and whatnot. And I don't think the Fed's prepared for any of that. I think you're right. And, you know, it's the way oil and spreads through the economy you know, it feeds mm-hmm. into food prices because it, it, it goes into fertilizer. It feeds into food prices because it goes into what it costs to bring our food, you know, in trucks around the country. And it feeds into food prices because it affects what we spend on electricity to keep food cold. So if you think about, you know, that's just one group of products, right? But there's, but there's oil all the way through. And if you look through the supply chains of the United States, there is petroleum products, whether it's, you know, paint for a house, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, it, it, it's everywhere. So when you see the price of oil shooting up, you can't, you know, it, yes, we know the most direct effect is into gasoline, but it does become a big part of the underlying inflation in the economy. And you're absolutely right that the Fed is trying to back off of rate hikes. Mm. It's really that'll become weirder and harder to do if, you know, as inflation keeps climbing. They've had a couple good months. It's going it's started to creep back up. If if oil goes above one hundred dollars a barrel, you're going to start to see some pretty big inflation numbers. Well, you've got um, five and a quarter to five and a half percent target rate. Uh, John, I think there's a pretty good chance it goes to six percent. I, I, I think that's right. I think uh, Michelle Bauman actually said that she thinks that they may have to keep raising. I don't think that they are going to uh, be able to say, okay, one more hike. Right now, this is what the Fed has kind of communicated, what the market is saying. One more hike, probably in November, and then we're done. We'll just hold it for the rest of the year. That doesn't work if prices start going back mm-hmm. up, which I think they are very likely to do, in, in part because of the oil influx. And, it, and also just the fact that the Biden administration is the budget deficits are going up so much. That's mm. a mm. big fiscal stimulus to the economy. 
that is going to push up prices as well. And so I think they're going to find sometime in the first quarter of next year, in the first three months, in other words, they're going to figure out, uh uh-oh, we made a mistake. We can't just hold at the level we thought we could. And some people say the Fed won't um, raise rates during an election year. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what history shows at all. It's a cynical view, but I don't think it's um, factually correct. They will raise rates. Just uh, whatever they say their target is, 2%, they will raise rates if they have to during the election year. I think I think that's right. I think there may be some hesitancy because they will they will go out of their way to make it, you know, to assure people that they are not trying to interfere in the election. But frankly, they're interfering if they don't raise rates when they should. Right. So realistically, they they definitely should if the economy is calling for it. I think they will. And I'm not sure that it hurts Biden more to have rate. I think actually what would would really kill Biden would to have inflation go back up to 6% year over year. That is, you know, the thing that has made people no longer trust his economic leadership. He came in with a lot of good faith and, you know, people thought he would, he could handle the economy. Well, that's what he ran on. Hmm. He didn't, he blew it. And a huge part of it is, uh, was what happened with inflation. I mean, Jay Powell may as well do the right thing because Trump's not going to reappoint him anyway. (laughs) (laughs) He has no no chance of getting reappointed. Not a chance. Um, I asked Trump directly when I interviewed him a few weeks ago. He said, nope. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think Trump would have reappointed. I mean, you know, it was very clear that Trump and Powell had had a very strong difference of opinion back in 2018. (laughs) I don't think Powell would be Fed chairman right now, frankly, if Trump had gotten reelected. I think that's um, probably right. John Carney, let me get reappointed. Before we lose you, and we appreciate you on a Saturday always, um, the uh, S&P, what is it, S&P Global PMIs? Yeah, looks like a softer economy. I'm you know, it's funny. The third quarter may be a good, strong number, John, but I think the economy is about to fall off a cliff. That's my take. It definitely look and part <laughs> of the, the, the thing that's been going on for a long time is we've seen parts of the economy weaken. So one of the things that's super interesting about the S&P Global PMI that just came out is you had a slight strengthening in manufacturing. It's still negative. It's still shrinking. It's mm. you know not good news. But it's not shrinking as fast. But that services sector, which has been a you know source of strength for the economy, hmm. is just on the verge of hitting below 50, which is the threshold for hmm. contraction. That shouldn't really be happening, frankly. Um, that should still be a part of the economy that that is expanding, um, in part because services sector is a lot less prone to be affected by higher interest rates. Hmm. Because you don't, you know, you don't borrow to eat out, right? Or you can, I guess, you can put it on a credit card, but it's, but it's not, you know, most services are not things we finance. We finance uh, goods for the most part, so it's a lot less susceptible to interest rates. This said, this report said, uh oh, you know, this is weakening a lot. The caveat on that is that the S and P PMIs have been pretty pessimistic, and come in, you know, if you just followed them. You would have been in the like we would have had a recession already camp. Mm. Um, so that that that's my one warning about it. All they right. may be a little too pessimistic. John Carney at Breitbart. Thanks a million. Appreciate it. Thanks for Folks, having me. We take a quick break. And on the other side, the great political consultant, Mr. Roger Stone. He's also a 
fashion consultant. I want to talk to him about Senate fashions. Roger Stone next. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We bring in Roger Stone, my pal, political consultant, strategist for many, many, many years, including Donald Trump. Roger, you know I can't resist because you publish your best dressed and your worst dressed, and Senator Senator Fetterman is now presiding over the Senate in a hoodie and shorts with the ugliest legs I've ever seen. What do you make of this, in all seriousness? Decline of fashion, Uh, decline of standards. uh, I really think it is uh, is an insult to decorum. Uh, I think it's unprofessional, inappropriate. Uh, I think uh, an insult to the other senators, an insult to the institution of the U.S. Senate, really an insult to his constituents back in Pennsylvania. I mean, Mm. it's not just short. The guy's wearing droopy basketball shorts, a dirty T-shirt, and a baggy hoodie. Uh, if you if you can't dress appropriately to conduct the people's business on the floor of the U.S. Senate, then you should find some other job. But here's the good news, Larry. Senator Joe Manchin is uh, circulating a resolution mm. that would reverse the uh, decision by Chuck Schumer to essentially cancel the dress code on the U.S. Senate floor. You know, Dick Durbin also, Roger. Durbin raised the stink about it, and I say good for him. Well, there's another uh, item here uh, in terms of this, and that is there's a certain elitist nature to it. So, in other words, if you're a staffer in the U.S. Senate, young man, young woman, working on the floor of the Senate, or even just in the Senate, Hmm. you're still required to wear a jacket and tie if you're a man, or a dress if Hmm. you're a woman. But senators themselves can now show up in anything whatsoever. I mean, Susan Collins threatened to come to the Senate floor <laughs> in a bikini, yes. which is something I really don't want to see. <laughs> but, but I, I, you know, and, and Rand Paul, who I like very much, hmm. showed up yesterday in a bathrobe just to make a point. Mm. I didn't know he did that. I, I love Rand Paul, but I hope he gets out of his bathrobe as, as soon as possible. Uh, Roger, speaking of Pennsylvania, my pal David McCormick has thrown his hat back into the ring in the Senate race against Bob Casey, uh, whose father was a great man, but Bob Casey is not a great man. Can McCormick take Pennsylvania? Yes, I really think that he can. I actually think David McCormick would have been a superior candidate Mm. in the last cycle. Mm. I don't agree with him on everything, by the way, but I think... A Republican majority in the Senate's very important. Uh, I really thought he was a strong candidate last time. There's a very feudal system in Pennsylvania where the county chairman and the state committee really matter in a primary. It's uh, other than New York State, it's one of the few states in the country where the party establishment does have substantial influence. Uh, I think McCormick's going to be an extraordinarily strong candidate. And you're absolutely right about one thing. Bob Casey is not his father, that's for sure. His father was a great man, um, terrific man, one of the last of the moderate conservative Democrats, pro-life Democrat. Um, other thing I want to raise with you is I know you've been writing about Michelle Obama, and I've heard that Ted Cruz talked about Michelle Obama uh, in his podcast, I think this past week, and 
I guess my only comment is, really? Really? Michelle Obama, who has no experience in anything? Well, actually, she was a city uh, attorney for the city of Chicago, where her major uh, uh, goal was to remove African-Americans from public housing and from the city's health care program. But, you know, in the day of celebrity, Larry, she's very popular. She's very well known. And it's increasingly obvious, I think, to Democrats that Joe Biden cannot win again. I mean, when what's his name? Chunk Yogurt or whatever his name is with the Young Turks has a piece out today begging Obama not to run. But The New York Times, The Washington Post, major columnists suggesting it's time for Biden to step down. Uh, Barack Obama is still the de facto head of the Democratic Party. Hmm. They have rejiggered their delegate selection process to bypass the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. That's a way of kneecapping Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Hmm. Uh, Michelle's now written her second biography in the same model of her husband. She was the keynote speaker at the last Democratic National Convention, just as Obama keynoted the 2012 convention when they nominated uh, John Kerry. She's out doing voter registration drives for some reason, Larry. Uh, And the South Carolina primary, their first primary, has an absolute majority of African-American voters in the Democratic primary. I stick by my prediction. Michelle Obama, will be the Democratic nominee for president, and they'll give Gavin Newsom the vice presidency, or more (laughs) precisely, they'll let him purchase it with special interest campaign funds uh, to round out their ticket. (laughs) You heard it first here. Actually, it's probably not first. Um, You have your radio show. Was it three to four? Most of these same stations. Three to five. five. Most of these same stations uh, on the Red Apple Network. Roger, um, what do you expect from the Republican debate on Wednesday night? Uh, I just don't think McCarthy uh, has uh, the votes uh, to uh, for his continuing resolution. Uh, and uh, I stand with Matt Gates. I think this is a, a matter of principle. We're either going to use the power of the purse to rein in a a, uh, a deeply corrupted uh, in, uh, administration, or we are not. I mean, what is the point? of running and taking pledges and then they're not fulfilling them to the American people. And the debate coming up, what are you looking for? Uh, well, I'm not knowledgeable enough to know, to be honest with you. Who's going to shine? Look, uh, Matt Gates is very articulate, but it would always be a mistake to underestimate Byron Donalds. Uh, Byron mm. Donalds is, uh, love- is very. Oh, you tried the presidential debate. Yeah, I see. I think nobody emerges once again. I think it's mm. a model. Donald Trump will dominate the debate by not being mm. there. That's yeah. my view. Yeah. And is there a vice presidential candidate in that gang? Too early to say. Tell me who the Democrats are, and then I'll tell you who Donald Trump uh, should select. I'm still not convinced that the Democrats will be Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, you have to see how the nomination process goes. Hmm. Uh, and until, if it is as easy as I think it will be for Donald Trump, I think it gives him much broader latitude. But we need to know who the Democrats are before you can decide the ideal running mate. First and foremost, it has to be someone who really has the qualifications uh, and the experience to be president, uh, you know, is the worst should happen. 
But I, I think Trump's got wide latitude, and I hope he. I think I hope he thinks outside the box. I'd like mm. to see someone who, like him, is not a career politician. All right, Roger Stone, great political consultant, longtime friend. Three to five p.m. on Sundays on most of these same stations. Thank you, Roger. We appreciate the update, folks. On Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break, quick break, and then at the top of the hour, we're going to do some stock market work. Jim Urio and Jeff Kilberg, stick around straight ahead. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, you can join us during the week. Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. If you can't get there at 4, text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. It's real simple. And here you can live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, heard all over the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. So we're going to do some stock market work. Not a great week for stocks. Let's see, the Dow's off 654, the NASDAQ was off 497. S&P 500 was down almost 3%, 130 points. Basically, the theme as I see it is stocks down and interest rates up. More of the same could be coming. Let's talk to our experts. Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services and Chicago's leading restaurateur. And Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial and uh, Notre Dame University. Gentlemen, welcome back. Um, Jim Urio, I was talking earlier in the show to Lee Cooperman, who's a very smart guy, I think you guys would acknowledge. Uh, he's got a new book out, it's a very interesting book, about his life and times up from nothing, really, to obviously a very successful guy. But we got around to talking about the stock market, and he suggested that multiples were too high relative to interest rates. And my challenge to you guys, I think interest rates are going to keep going higher because I think inflation is going to keep going higher because of energy. And I think the Fed's going to 6%. And I think the 10-year bond is going to at least 5%. Jim Irio, go ahead. Go ahead after it. (laughs) There's no question that the market agrees with you right now, and that's the reason for the stock market weakness, I think. It's all coincides. The dollar's been up for 10 straight weeks in a row. The, uh, we're not pricing in nearly as many rate eases in 2024 as we had been before. So the market thinks the higher for longer thing is, is that's what we're trading on right now. Whether or not I agree with you, I, I don't think I do agree with you. I, I think that if the stock market does what I think it's going to do, and that will be my indication will be an, another poor day on Monday below last week's lows. If that happens, I think that we're you know, easily, in my opinion, due for a 9 to 10% correction off these highs that we made. Uh, two weeks ago. And mm-hmm. I think that then changes the Fed's thinking, because then they'll all of a sudden start going, oh, you know, burning timbers are falling from the ceiling. You know, they, they pretend that they're not, 
sensitive to stock market fluctuations? We know that they are. We saw it. We've seen it in the past. Anytime there's a significant move lower, they change their tune. So I think that the market thinks rates are going to be higher for longer, and I think in the short term that narrative is going to persist. But I think we could be weeks away from that flipping. Jeff Kilberg, how high is bond yield going to go, the 10-year? That's the trillion-dollar question, Larry, and I don't think there's much more. And If I would have gone back last October when you and Jim Urey were crawling into your bear suit, when the S&P 500 was at 3,600, mm-hmm. and I would have told you that the 10-year nose is going to go up to 4.5%, and the S&P would still be up over 4,300, I don't think anyone would have believed me. So I guess my point is, yes, we are feeling acute pain and in interest rate sensitivity when the 10-year has come up here, but... I think we're putting way too much credit into the Fed. The Fed has been wrong every step of the way. Remember their transitory call on inflation? That didn't really prove out to be so well. So I think they have to come out with their hawkish pause. I think they have to continue to talk about rates moving higher. But going back to my 10-year days when I traded the Chicago Board of Trade, I believe the 10-year is actually going to tuck back under 4% in Q4. That's a very lonely call right now, but I'm used to that. But I think the resiliency in the equity market has been uh, shining, and at the same time, the 10-year note, if it can calm down, if the two-year note can calm down, I think you'll see that. But the Fed, by design, loves this inversion. It's a higher cost of capital. It's a synthetic rate hike for them. Mm, synthetic can, rate you, can Jeff prove that you and I, Larry, were this bearish that he claims we were back in October? No, we need receipts on that. And if it's true, it was only a couple of weeks, I'm pretty certain. No, no, he's the, um, he's, the Joe, he's the Joe Biden of the stock market today. Next thing, he's going to blame Donald Trump. He's going to blame Donald Trump for the immigration problem, the inflation problem, every problem. That's Jeff Kilberg. Yeah. I thought Notre Dame's having a good fall. I don't know why this bad mood is really something. <laughs> and Lou Holtz is on campus at South Bend. It's going to be a great, na- a great day and a great night for the Fighting Irish. By the way, I love Lou Holtz. I know him very well. I love yeah. – did you play for Lou Holtz? I did. I did. I did. Once he found out I I was leaving, once he found out I was leaving and graduating Notre Dame, he realized it was time for him to leave as well. So we both left together in 1997. (laughs) I love Lou Holtz. Just love, love, love. Oh, my God, what a great man he is. Um, All right, uh, Jim Urio, the other thing that interests me here is the economy, which probably will print a pretty good number in the third quarter. We won't know that for about a month, but judging from the Atlanta Fed, which is probably too high, but I probably, you know, you could get a 3% something prints. But I think the economy's underpinnings are lousy, and I think you're going to see a big economic slump. I think it's going to show up in the fourth quarter and particularly the first quarter. What are you thinking about the economy? I'm actually relatively certain of that as well. I was wrong about when the recession was going to happen, and I, I know why I was wrong too. I, I think that the, the rate hikes, were much less efficacious just because of the fact that 10-year yields were below 2% for the five years that preceded the first rate hike, meaning that everybody, including you know homeowners, businesses, had ample opportunity to roll into duration to insulate themselves somewhat from rates going up. So now everybody in their 30-year mortgages who isn't selling their house going, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I got a 3% mortgage. So it didn't have the same punch. And then you throw on the other side that people got money on the sidelines that we always talked about for 10 years and we pretended that it was fuel for the stock market going higher. Well, now that money on the sidelines earning, you know, four and a half to five and a half percent, depending on where they're at. That's, they're perfectly comfortable. So that's why I think it's going slower. But if you look, the labor numbers to me 
are, are coming down, the nonsense of these headline um, non-farm payroll numbers that come out and beat and then are revised for the next three months down mm-hmm. to half of what they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, smacks of, it smacks of corruption, or it's possibly just that that birth death model doesn't understand market turns. So it, it might be one of the two things. But either way, I think that uh, the recession is definitely coming. Jeff Kelberg, what do you think about the economy? You know, I, I agree there are some cracks. We're seeing credit card debt vault over a trillion dollars. That's not a great sign. But by and large, there's pockets of optimism. You are still seeing the consumer strength. And as you know, two-thirds of our economy is driven by the consumer. But I think it's interesting. Jimmy brought up a great point, And I don't really say that too often. You know my disdain for Jimmy Uriel. So when I say he brought up a great point, hang in there. Don't fall out of your chair, Larry. But what's interesting is that he talks about the juicy 5% yield that people have been gravitated towards in the U.S. Treasury market. Well, here, as we're going into the seasonality of September, the end of the quarter, I think people are looking at the S&P 500 up 14% year-to-date, and maybe there's going to be some rebalance. And that could be some enthusiasm going into stocks in October because people are realizing that the maturity on those six-month, one-year, and two-year notes are coming, and maybe they take a little more risk and become a little bit more in the stock market. That's how I see Q4 going. Go ahead. <clears throat> no way. Twelve and a half percent. Jimmy, are you still there? Jimmy, are you still there? I'm still there, but I say, I say no way to that. I say the opposite's going to happen. The people are going to look at the stock market, say up fourteen percent, and say, "Wow, maybe it's time to rebalance and put my my uh, money in some of those juicy two years." Um, so, I, yeah, I, I do I do disagree with you on that. I think that we're going to look at. The, I think you look at the glass half empty and leaking. And if you recall, this is a post midterm election year. Historically speaking, going back to 1970, the S&P 500 has outperformed on average up 16. percent So the one, one for Kilberg, that was a good one. Nice, you had that in your pocket. History. Well done. So, I think we really have to respect some of the technicals. And, and right now, the S&P 500 is nearing oversold territory on our relative strength index level. Ten years gone to five percent. Ten years oh gone well, to five percent. Then, then my whole thesis you can put in in the garbage can. I'm not saying. I'm not saying forever. Right. I'm not saying forever. Uh, the ten year yields may break down a lot next year, but right okay. now I think you're in a tricky position. And one of the big variables, actually, let's take a break. I want to talk about energy because I think that's a, a a known unknown to use Donald Rumsfeld's. Uh, idea um folks we are we are sort of having a conversation with jim urio (laughs) tjm institutional services and jeff kilberg kkm financial and notre dame university i'm still kudlow we'll be right back this is the larry kudlow show now back to the larry kudlow show welcome back folks i'm larry kudlow we are here with jim urio tjm institutional services Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. We're talking stocks and other markets. Let's talk some energy. Jim Urio, I will begin with you. How high is the oil price going to go? Because that is going to impact inflation, top-line CPI, which will impact the Federal Reserve, which will impact interest rates, which will impact stocks. There you go. Okay. So the last couple times I've been on the show, I'd said $100 oil was in the cards. Check the receipts on that, Kilberg, by the way. But anyway, so now I, I, I think we are, I think for the in the short term, I think it trades between 90 and um, 82, 83. There is one thing that I disagree with a little bit. I think on balance, there is no question that um, elevated oil prices are inflationary. It is a, you know, that cost push back from the 70s, uh, that's there and it's real. However, 
I think it is overestimated because at the same time, it is pulling liquidity out of the system like a tax at the pump. And we still import you know, half the oil, and, um, and that money is going other places. So I think it is inflationary, but not as much as many other analysts think so, too. Now I think we, tra- we trade in between the range because it needs a, a better reason now to head for the 100 than just uh, Saudis and Russia cutting production, putting the screws to us because they were unhappy about us selling the SPR. But I, I think it matters. I don't think it matters as much as other people do in the inflation picture, if that makes any sense. Mm, Jeff Kilber, what, what are you thinking on oil? Well, when I look at energy overall and oil, there's a bit of a bifurcation when you look at crude oil vaulting above $90. A little hat tip to Uriel, even though Blind Squirrel finds a nut. So he was right on that yeah. call of oil going higher to $100. <laughs> but when you see copper, Dr. Copper, tucked down under $4 at three seventy, that bifurcation is a little troublesome and does speak a little bit more to the inflationary input that oil is. But if you look at energy, by and large, XLE, that's ETF we like to follow, You know that is up substantially about 15% in the last three months when everything else is down. But mm. year to date, you've seen energy just kind of lag up 2% after you know a nice move higher. But you look at names like Pioneer, PXD, Marathon, MPC, those are names that we want to own. I think you know specifically like a Pioneer, it's yielding more than your 10-year note call. It's yielding about 7.2%. So I think there's a reason to own energy. I think you have to be selective. It's a stock picker's market. Well, look, the prices are firm because there's a shortage of um, oil. The world is undersupply with oil right now. And Biden doesn't want to drill in Alaska. He doesn't want to drill in the Gulf of Mexico. He doesn't want to drill in New Mexico. And the Saudis and the Russians don't want to drill because uh, the Saudis have a big budget deficit and Russia's fighting a war. And then you have these little little haters like Venezuela and Iran. I mean, where's the oil production going to come from? I mean, why won't prices go to $125? They might, and I don't even know if Biden knows where Alaska is right now. But at the end of the day, you're right, Larry. That's supply and demand component, and then you throw in Putin. You know, there's, there's some global headwinds there that could spike it over $100, and Uriel could actually be right for the second time in one year. Yeah, well. So I, but what you said, Larry, I, can I build on it for one second? Because mm-hmm. right now people are looking at our oil production and saying, ah, things are fine, we're producing oil. But we are not making investments in producing oil in the future. Right. We are. This, right. this is going right. to be an enormous deal this right. ridiculous energy policy that they... Uh, We're still under 13 million barrels a day. We're still under the pre-pandemic 13.1 million barrels a day. We should be at 15 million barrels a day were it not for these crazy Green New Deal climate policies. There is no doubt about it. And we're not making the investment. Mike Worth said that there'll never be another um, refinery built in this country again because of mm-hmm. the regulatory hurdle it has to jump over. And that, this is... It's a huge deal, and we if they, they sure as hell, PEC better be right on their green new energy things, if they, particularly excluding nuclear, which is completely asinine, because uh, we have a very difficult time finding oil in about two years. I know. I think it's a big problem, and I think it's going to become a Federal Reserve problem. You know, Jeff Kilberg, you can't, the Fed can't keep creating money if oil prices are going up, because then they'll embed inflation. You know, oil permeates the entire economy. You know, hundreds of prices are impacted by refined petroleum products. That's why oil is so important. And I think the Fed, I think people in general underestimate the inflationary potential of higher oil prices. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why the Fed removes food and energy from their inflationary. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. Right? right. Yeah. You can get, 
Right, you can get right. They'll hit their two percent target by taking out food, energy, shelter, every other bloody thing. Everything that goes up, right? Yeah. But but I think real quickly, it's interesting. The Fed, you know, they're still about eight trillion dollars on their balance sheet. So I know they've talked about their ninety-five billion dollar a month draining. But at the end of the day, they had to save some of the regional banks. So they still have a very swollen balance sheet. And if you think mm-hmm. about, you, know, you keep on hearing Fed Chairman Paul talk about his soft landing. That balance sheet is the pillow on the tarmac for that soft landing. If they really do get serious about reducing that balance sheet, which they should. Let's remember before the great financial crisis back in 08, the balance sheet was $450 billion with a B, and now we're above $8 trillion with a T. So it is a little bit of Looney Tunes when you think about how much money they actually have out there. You know, that is one of the most sensible things you've said in years. That whole (laughs) ref you just did. Exactly right. I mean, you just nailed it, completely nailed it. Jim Urio, um, the CRB index, though, has been very strong. The mm-hmm. overall commodity index has been very strong. Bloomberg's been very strong the last three months. Yeah, here's what worries me about that, too. So the CRB, I mean, you look at oil, too, certain things. Copper, copper is held in relatively well, considering that the dollar index has rallied for 10 straight weeks and mm. the news out of China has been relatively awful. So the, to me, it seems like when the Fed, if what I think is going to happen in the next um, couple months, and then all of a sudden the Fed is going to have to talk dovish again, I think those things could really explode the, based on the fact that they've done pretty well in the shadow of a strong dollar. So mm. I, I think uh, those things could head higher if we do any sort of dollar-reversing policy. Does the dollar increase cut into profits? I mean, it's still below where it was, I think, a year ago or something. Wasn't the dollar like 112 or 114? Now it's 105. No, I think at this point in time, it's just it's just on your radar as what could what could happen as far as uh, the future goes. I think at 105, it's perfectly it's mm. perfectly acceptable level. Mm. Yeah, no, I would tend to agree with that. Jeff Kilberg, what's your favorite? Uh, is energy your favorite uh, sector right now? You know, energy is, but there's also, you know, some of the blue chip names that you kind of don't even think about or forget about. But some of the names in defense, like a Lockheed Martin, you know, mm. we like owning those names because we think, you know, if we do see a change in administration, not to talk political, but there is going to be some revivement. Boeing's a name that's, you know, trying to find its steps. So there, there's certain names that we still want to own like that. But we're not walking away from the Googles, the Amazons, and, of course, Meta, which is you know just having a ridiculous year after a pretty tough 2022. But I think you have to be really considerate of where you're owning. And there's names like Berkshire Hathaway. There's names like CME Group. Those are names that you just don't talk about or hear on the financial news. And CME Group's having a great year. More and more mm-hmm. we trade these interest rates, they're up 20%. So I think you have to look a little bit under the hood to find some of these stocks that make sense. And Jim Urio, your favorite sector? The only the sector I only like right now is because I think everything has itself, and I don't like oil as much right now, is I'm going to say gold and, mm. and copper. Um, the, the trade, and this doesn't have as much to do with the stock market, but I am looking at spot to buy the yen, and that might be a, um, a big trade. But it has to show some strength before I do that. But the gold trade to me, a trade above Gold is the worst, the worst chart, the worst chart out there. It hasn't moved. Look at the ten-year, fifteen-year chart of gold, and then we'll talk about that. We'd be shoving each other if we were in the same room right now. (laughs) I don't. What? Whatever happened to Japan? The yen, Japan. I remember when Japan was the biggest. Japan was the China of its day. We hated Japan. Do you remember? 
And then they yeah, were buying up our land and our golf courses and Rockefeller Center. Mm-hmm. And then the whole bloody yeah. thing crashed, and we haven't heard from them ever since. That was like yeah, 30 years ago. They could, control, they could control everything to the most minute detail. Yeah. It, 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 we, call, we thought it was a market economy, but look what they do with yield curve control, controlling their currency. They can't control it as much as they think, and they ended up damaging their economy. It should be a lesson learned for all of us. Do you know in the early 1970s, one dollar bought 350 yen? Did you know that? Yeah, that's know. true. That's a true point. And the price of gold was was 35 dollars an ounce, and the dollar was linked to gold, and we all live happily ever after. <laughs> Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial, Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services, some pretty wild stuff, folks. I'm Cudlow. On the side of the break, we're going to talk money and politics with Liz Peek and Monica Crowley. Stick around, please. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money and politics with Liz Peek. Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Monica Crowley, former assistant treasury secretary and sponsor of the Monica Crowley podcast. Not author, sponsor. Although I don't know what's... Host. Host, Larry. Oh, host. host. Monica. All right, host. Monica Crowley podcast. Host. Something. Host. Okay, I got it all. Now, in the same week, this is incredible, in the same week, Roger Stone and Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz, are predicting that the Democratic nominee for president is going to be Michelle Obama. Same week, Stone, Cruz, Michelle Obama. I begin with you, Monica Crowley. What do you make of this forecast? Two heavyweights, what do you think? Well, I'll tell you, Larry, and it's great to be on with you and Liz again. I will tell you that in March of 2021 at CPAC, I predicted this in front of a crowd of thousands of people from the main stage. I was the very first person to publicly say that we need to consider the possibility that the Democrats were going to find at some point Joe Biden has outlived his usefulness to the left's power brokers, that they were going to move him off stage move his vice president off stage since she is the most unpopular vice president in American history, or at least recent history, and that the way they could solve their problem of getting the Obamas a fourth and a fifth term, because right now we're living through Obama's third term, they want a fourth and a fifth, but the most effective way to do that is actually to draft Michelle Obama. And I remember at the time, Larry, the entire um, the entire room, the ballroom of thousands of people fell silent when I tossed out to <laughs> Michelle Obama. And I said, please do not shoot the messenger. It does us no good to live in fantasy land or wishful thinking that they may not run her because she will be the biggest challenge to President Trump, assuming he is the nominee, um, and to the Republican Party because she is a woman. She is a woman of color. 
She has her husband. She has the entire Obama machine and the Democratic Party behind her. She is iconic and she is immune to criticism, (laughs) which makes her a very formidable force to run against. And I just want to say one final thing. My friend Joel Gilbert, about a year and a half ago, actually put out a documentary on Michelle Obama. So he was really the very first one to throw this idea out there. And I recommend that documentary to everybody. It's called Michelle Obama 2024. Go and check that out as well. But if the Democrats turn to her and they run her, this is going to be very difficult for President Trump and the Republicans to run again. What I took away from that is I wish I were immune from all criticism. That's what I took away from <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> all right, Liz Peek, you're on. Go ahead, Michelle Obama. By the way, Roger Stone just about 20 minutes ago or half hour ago or whatever predicted uh, Michelle Obama and Gavin Newsom. That was his ticket. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think a lot of us have talked about this for some time, and it does make sense, particularly if Joe Biden is somehow removed from the scene late in the game. I mean, uh, it's all well to talk about Gavin Newsom and Gretchen Whitmer, but they got to get going. I mean, if they don't have a robust primary season, all of a sudden we're going to be looking at a Democratic Party that really has no choice but to run Joe Biden and Kamala Harris again, and they don't want to do that. So, yeah, Michelle Obama is the obvious choice in that she comes fully equipped with Obama's fundraising apparatus, obviously total name recognition, and frequently voted um, the most popular woman in America. So Monica's (laughs) right. She's a formidable candidate. I think the longer she's the candidate, uh, the less uh, a slam dunk it is, because she does have a tendency to say things that are alienating to a lot of Americans, like she's not proud of our country and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. So really the ideal situation is Joe sort of bumbles through campaign season, possibly almost to the cusp of the convention, and then has a health episode, quote unquote, or whatever, removes himself, and Michelle Obama is proclaimed uh, at the convention, the candidate, because then Americans really won't get much of a look of what she really is like on the stump. And, and we don't know that. We've never seen her campaign. Well, so I think had... it's possible. It's likely. It's very good for Democrats. Mm-hmm. Why she would do it is beyond me. She always made it clear she didn't like living in Washington. She didn't like occupying the White House. Uh, and she's worth tens of millions of dollars. So, you know, other than a, just a lust for power, which obviously infects a great many politicians and families, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know why she'd do it. Yeah, lust for power. That'll do it every time. They do have a nice house in Washington. They kept the house. Yep, fact, there's that. They, they lived right next to... Can um... I make one other point on this, Larry? Can mm-hmm. I make one other point? So, look, if they decide to move Joe Biden from the scene and off the stage, they have the secondary problem, which is Kamala Harris, which I mentioned. They can't run her or they will lose, and they know that. But they've got a big problem there because Kamala Harris is a woman of color and the most devoted, passionate constituency for the Democrats is black women. So they don't want to alienate that core voting block. And really the only potential candidate that can square that circle is Michelle Obama. Now, Liz is right that the calendar is moving very fast. We only have 13 more months until the presidential election. So, yeah, these other candidates have to move fast. 
But it's also true, as Liz points out, that the Obama machine has the entire infrastructure ready to go. Mm. Fundraising, personnel. Susan Rice left the White House. She is back with the Obamas. She could run that campaign. All they have to do is throw a switch. And what they might do, even though it's exceedingly difficult, I concede, but what they could do is literally wait until the convention, which happens for the Democrats next August. And then they draft her, and she poses as a reluctant candidate who really doesn't (laughs) want to do it, but will do it for her country. That's how she stays out of the primary. She doesn't have to take any kind of hard positions and alienate people and get beaten up as a candidate. She will literally have like two, two and a half months of campaigning, and that's it. So literally, that could be the worst case scenario. And when I spoke to President Trump for my podcast like two months ago, I said, are you ready for this possibility, Mr. President? Because if you're not, you better be. What did he say? What did he say? Well, he he sort of paused and he said, (laughs) we are ready for all contingencies. And I hope that is correct. (laughs) Yeah. Liz, I was reading your uh, article in The Hill. You're ready. Why doesn't Joe Biden reset? He's not going to reset. He's yeah. a lefty and he's surrounded by lefties. He's a sheep in sheep's clothing. He's a socialist in socialist clothing. Bernie Sanders, you're the one who said the, the compact between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. But the Ob- are the Obamas the same? Are they as socialist as, as uh, Biden's going to be? Well, that's a good question. I mean, clearly, uh, I, I think Joe Biden has surprised a lot of people by moving as far left as he has, certainly on climate, that's pretty obvious. Will Michelle Obama be equally uh, in the in thrall to the climate lobby? I kind of doubt it. I mean, I feel I, I thought Obama was a terrible president. He certainly is left leaning. But I think they're a little more pragmatic than Joe mm-hmm. Biden. Yeah. The yeah. reason I wrote this, Larry, is you know, there's a lot of chatter about whether Joe Biden's actually running. It took forever to build a campaign apparatus. He hasn't really been out on the stump much. There's been some criticism in Democrat circles about this very sluggish campaign. But I think the most glaring omission uh, is that he hasn't done the pivot. I mean, he hasn't done what a lot of politicians do as they approach reelection, which is to kind of backtrack on some of the things that are most unpopular. And what is most unpopular? Rising gasoline prices, which voters trace back to Joe Biden's fossil uh, war on fossil fuels. And they're right. Also, they can trace it back to his animosity towards Mohammed bin Salman. But that's probably a little, you know, one step down. The answer is people are mad about that. They think you should, you know, encourage U.S. oil and gas production rather than looking at that looking for that in Venezuela or Saudi Arabia, and they're right. So it'd be pretty easy, I think, for Joe Biden to make that step. Uh, And yeah, sure, he's going to alienate some environmentalists, but they're not going to vote Republican. So what does he really lose? Uh, And then obviously the border. Right now the border is crushing him. It is so chaotic. Mm -hmm. There isn't an American now that looks at what's going on uh, in terms of illegal immigration and isn't horrified. So again, did he make a little feint in that direction last week with this uh, uh, approving of work permits, accelerating work permits for Venezuelans? Not really, because that really just encourages more people to come into the country illegally. So I just find it so peculiar and honestly just so stupid politically not to at least pretend 
that you care about these two issues because that's what's really sinking him mainly in the polls. You know, um, if you go back, Barack Obama kept most of the George W. Bush tax cuts. Barack Obama deported a lot of illegal immigrants. And Barack Obama was not a radical on climate change. He was not. He particularly, you know, Illinois is an oil and gas state, particularly natural gas. I mean, you can make a case that Obama, Michelle Obama, I mean, I'm just assuming she adopts her husband's policies. I don't know what she thinks about anything. But my point is, there's a mod, there's your reset right yeah. there. It's not going to come from Joe. It could come from the Obamas. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I mean, I think, again, they're more pragmatic. I don't know that. I, I mean, who knew that Joe Biden had this <laughs> hidden sort of ideological star, North Star of <laughs> leftism. I mean, no one, he didn't, he kept uh, denying that during the campaign. And I do think it's this alliance with Bernie Sanders and the recognition he needs Mm -hmm. those Sanders voters uh, that has kept him in that lane. All right, quick break. I I would just, can can I just uh, make a point? I would just disagree with this a little bit here, because I think, I, I think the country is in a far different place than it was in 2008 when Obama uh, was running for president and that the Obamas, as well as the far left, moved the country during that period of time. Now, we had the four years under President Trump where he threw a lot of that movement toward the far left into reverse. But now under Biden uh, and the left's power brokers, they've moved with all, with all deliberate speed to get us back <laughs> way past where the Obamas were. So if Michelle Obama were to run and, God forbid, win, you know, the, she and and the Obama team and the left and the Democrats and the progressives would, would be starting from a far more radical position. So I don't think we can assume that what the Obamas did from 08 to 16 is any kind of guide of how they would govern into the future. We won't know what's in that bill until it's finally passed. That's the problem here. Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, Monica Crowley, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and what host of the Monica Crowley podcast. God, I got to get that right. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Monica Crowley, former assistant secretary of the Treasury and host of the Monica Crowley podcast. Um, Kids, can we review, take a look at the Republican debate on Wednesday at the Ronald Reagan Library? I actually had to look up who was going to be on the debate, but I guess it's... uh, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy. I think that's the lineup. I think the others have Pence? to drop. Is Pence on it, Larry? Oh, I'm sorry. Mike Pence. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I think there's six, isn't there? I think One, so. One, two, three, four, five, six. I think that's right. So, all right, Liz, you dip your toe into the water. What are you looking for? What's going to happen here? They're going to kill each other? Are they going to kill Trump? Are they, anyone going to talk about Bidenomics, immigration? I mean, what are they going to do? Well, hopefully, since it's being hosted by Fox Business, there will be talk about the economy and Bidenomics and what 
uh, that candidates would like to do, in, you know, rather than what uh, Joe Biden's doing. Uh, I, I think in terms of who they're going to beat up on, it is interesting that no one goes after Trump. I guess they all just view that as uh, toxic because he has such a very strong lead in most of these primaries. Um, I thought that Nikki Haley did very well in the first round. I think she'll probably do well again because she's very well prepared, she's articulate, and she's forceful. Uh, Ramaswamy certainly came to everyone's attention in that first debate. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he positions himself this time. He's been very, he was very combative in that debate. And as you know, Larry, he is not like that really in person. He tends to be sunnier, more optimistic, et cetera. So I'm kind of hoping he displays more of that and less of the sort of, uh, I thought, sort of bumptious uh, antagonism towards all his rivals. But, you know, um, most importantly, I think at some point someone's going to have to take on Trump. And obviously Christie wants to do that, but nobody else really does. So um, I'm looking for that. And I'm also looking for answers on the border. They mm. need – Republicans need to get out there and tell Americans that we're going to fix this border problem and here's how. Uh, it's the time for that. And even though it's not purely economic, it does have economic uh, repercussions. Monica, is – can any of them break out and really challenge Trump at this point? I think it's very late in the game for any of them to, to have any chance of doing that. I mean, obviously, for the last year or so, a lot of people put their time, their resources, their money behind Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis as the most obvious possibility to take on Donald Trump and really challenge him. Um, in terms of poll numbers and, and debate on policy, and yet Governor DeSantis is really not. He, he's proven to be a disappoint, disappointment, I think, to a lot of uh, primary voters who wanted to like him, maybe wanted to, to look at him, to support him as an alternative to Trump. And he just didn't deliver um, in terms of a very effective campaign. Now, again, 24 hours in politics can be a lifetime, so things can change. But when it comes to Trump, he is so dominant. Um, most of these polls show him leading his nearest competitor by 40, 50. Some polls have him up by 60 points. So I, I do think that the Republican base, which is a MAGA base, it's an America first base now. It's a populist base. They cannot wait to get out of their homes and vote for Donald Trump again. And, you know, one of the big things that Donald Trump has, and he's, he's really had it since 2015 when he first came on the political scene, which no other candidate has, is an emotional bond mm. with the voters. And not just Republican voters, but disaffected Democrats, independent voters. It's an emotional bond. It's not a political one. It's not one based on policy, even though he delivered a phenomenal presidency in every direction. But it's not intellectual or political. It's an emotional bond. And that is, number one, unbreakable. And number two, insurmountable for any other candidate to overcome. And with all these indictments, it's just locked that in. You know, people will like that. They, they will march forward for Donald Trump. And that's something I don't think any other candidate can overcome. Now, the point of these debates then without Trump is for all of these other Republican candidates to either position themselves as a potential running mate for Donald Trump or uh, a cabinet mm -hmm. position or, mm -hmm. you know, if something unforeseen happens and, say, Donald Trump goes to prison, 
Now you need an alternative, and, and I think voters would take a look at this field. So the debates are certainly worthwhile in, in terms of policy positions, having them aired out, and also having these individuals introduce themselves just, to the American just people. wanted to come back, though, to a point Liz made. You know, the immigration catastrophe, I mean, the numbers came out Friday night, the yeah. uh, 2.4 million now uh, in total, he's well over, Biden's well over 7 million uh, illegals. You know, Liz, I don't, I don't know what the questions are going to be like, but in some sense, that's the hottest issue right now is the immigration issue. No question. And I think it's one where Biden is a complete loser. Uh, and I, you know, again, it does have economic repercussions. Obviously, a lot of cities around the country are really struggling to meet the needs of all these migrants and, and be able to pay for that. But also, Larry, at some point, people need to be pointing out to lower-income Americans, many of whom vote Democrat, that their hourly wages are under attack. Yes. I mean, in New yes. York City, it's visible. Yes. People are going out and taking yes. jobs. That's going to happen nationwide. The no, second thing point. that clearly I, I is... Gotta, I got to yeah, jump yeah, go ahead. off. I'm yeah. awful sorry, but I agree with what the points are, and I hope that comes up. Anyway, thank you, kids. Liz Peek and Monica Crowley, many, many thanks. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We'll be back next weekend. If you came across a child struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.